Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, Israel, the decrees and the laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor your foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest, as do you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honour your father and your mother, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long, and that it may go well with you in the land of the Lord your God that is given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife, you shall not set your desires on your neighbour's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. Going on to Romans 7, verse 1 to 10. <coughs> Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as they live? For example, by law, a married woman is barren to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not 
have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was had the law not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, spring, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For the sake of our marriage on Friday night, um, and because it's one of Joe's favourite films, we watched Return to Me. Uh, David Tocophany stars as Bob. Bob's in construction. He's a construction manager. And then there's Elizabeth, who is played by Jodie Richardson. And the film starts, she's a zoologist in Chicago. The film starts with um, perfection and happiness. Um, it's a happy marriage. They get on really well. And there's a dog to boot, no children, but a dog who adores them. And uh, they're just enjoying life. It's sunny, everything is happy and well. And, and then at the end of a busy day on the construction site, uh, Bob, David Tocophany, puts on his tuxedo because there's a fundraiser that they both want to go to. And Elizabeth comes home from her work in the zoo looking after the apes. And she gets in the best dress she's got. And they're going out to a fundraiser because they want to raise money as much as they can for a new uh, enclosure for the apes at the zoo where uh, Elizabeth works. They're having such a great time but then just we're 10 minutes into the film at this point at the end of their lovely night together when they raise a bucket load of money there's a terrible car accident and the director takes us to Chicago Hospital where we don't see the body of Elizabeth, but we see David Duchovny, Bob, weeping with blood on his white press shirt, with his uh, tuxedo in tatters because Elizabeth is on a bed and it looks like she's dying and the doctors do her best, but she loses her life and his world is shattered. The director then takes us to another lady. We've not met her before, but her name is Grace. She's lying horizontally in a bed in the same hospital in Chicago where Elizabeth has just lost her battle for life. Grace desperately needs a new heart. Since she was 14, she's had a debilitating heart disease. She lost both her parents when she was in childhood. And the director takes us on a journey. You need Kleenex when you are watching this one. It's very, it's a good film. It's moving. Men, you can bear this one. It's not that bad. But it's a real weepy. And uh, the director takes us on this wonderful journey through what happens next. A year later, where you've got Bob who's stopping grieving and starting to live life again. And then you've got Grace, where she can start living because she's got a new heart. And therefore she can enjoy life. She's a budding artist. And the director takes us on this wonderful journey about death and almost death and then life. You can rent the film or you can watch it on, you don't rent films anymore. You use Netflix and things like that. But it's a wonderful film about somebody who was facing death and then she receives new life. She needed a new heart. And why on earth am I telling you that when we look at a passage like this in Deuteronomy chapter 5? I tell you why. Because each one of us are exactly like grace. We have a heart disease and we need a new heart. That's what the Ten Commandments is actually about. It shows us our limitations and it shows us that we need God to give us a new heart. Because there's no way, as we thought last week, that we can climb the ladder through our own performance to God. We cannot do it. God is greater than we think he is, and we are more lowly than we think we are, even on our best days. 
And here in these commandments, which are three, at least 3,000 years old, and form the foundation, they form the footing, they form the, uh, the thing that we can build our lives around in all of human society. And they're widely recognised as uh, the most influential ethical directors in the history of the world. That's not an overstatement. But what have they got to say to us? Well, we could spend 10 weeks at least looking at these. We're going to spend one. And I want to do that by looking at one verse. It's verse 21 of Deuteronomy 5. These ethical directives actually, I think, are there to show us what we really need is heart surgery. We need a new heart. Look at verse 21. God sends this, you shall not covet. And then he expands on that. I want to meditate on those four words, you shall not covet. And if we meditate on those this morning, I think we see, we see what we need. We need a new heart. We also see why we need it. And then we see how we can get it. Okay, that's the journey we're going to take. Why, or rather what we need, why we need it, and how to get it. I think it's there in, those, in that sentence, verse 21. And those four words, you shall not covet, they just begin to scratch the surface of what we need. So number one, what we need. We need a new heart. If you uh, spent some time in Romans 7, it's quite a confusing passage on the surface at least, but it's written by a man called Paul, the Apostle Paul. He saw the risen Jesus and he was transformed by the power of God and by the Spirit of God. He was a wolf attacking the church and then he became a shepherd who loved the sheep, the Christians. That's really his journey. And if you read the New Testament, and Paul wrote most of that, you would see here and there, autobiographical statements about his journey. Here was a man, the Apostle Paul, who thought that he could get to God by his own standards. He thought that he, if he tried hard enough, he could obey and keep every single jot and tittle, every sentence, every commandment that God uttered. He thought he was the chief of Pharisees. He thought he was better than other religious people, and he was certainly better than all those ordinary people. That's a, a biographical statement of the Apostle Paul. But then, although he was alive and happy because he thought he could keep them, then there came a moment in these verses in Romans chapter 7 that as he thought to think about, especially the 10th one, thou shall not covet, verse 9 says, when I came to grips with that passage, I actually realised that I was a broken man. I realised that I was being destroyed by the law that I thought was giving me life. I was devastated by it. And verse 10 of Romans 7 said, These things that I thought I could do to attain to God's standard actually left me spiritually dead. This is that in verse 10 of Romans 7. Why did that happen? I think this is what happened. Paul began to not see the commandments as a ladder to get to God as he began to meditate on the commandments of God. He saw that actually... Commandments go far deeper than behaviour. They go to the heart. You can see that from verse 21. It says that you shall not cover it, and then God begins to reveal through the lips of Moses that actually we need a new heart. And, and Paul's understanding of the law went from behaviour, from do this and don't do that, and don't do that and do this, from behaviour. What God was demanding was something far, far deeper. God's talking about motives. God's talking about attractions, he's talking about desires, he's talking about passions that drive our behaviour, not just behaviour itself. And, and Paul became undone, he became distraught, he thought he was alive but actually he says, 
When I grasped this, Romans 7, verse 9 through 11, it was as if I was dead. I thought the Lord brought life, but it didn't. It's bringing me to die. What is God calling us to do with these four words? Thou shalt not covet. You shall not covet. What does covet mean? In the Bible, the, the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament has two different words that mean the same thing. Coveting is not just saying, oh, I want that suite, I want that chair, I want that car that you drive now. Coveting is something far deeper. If you understand that word in the Bible, as, and as the Bible uses it, it means a life dominating, an intense craving. It's almost like an addiction word. It's a desire for something. It's something that you live your life for or something you stake your life on. That's a, that's a covetous desire. It's not just, I don't just want that car. I, that car's going to drive everything that I do. I'm going to change career to get that car. I'm going to change my livelihood to get that lifestyle. It's something that drives you. It's like a fuel. That's why it's more like a, an addiction in the right use of that word. It's not just, I want. It's, I will forsake everything to get that, whatever that is. Hebrew and Greek use the same, or different words to make the same point. It means to invest the main part of your hopes. It means to invest all of your happiness on something or someone. That's what it means to, to covet something. And when Paul realised this, he then sees the Ten Commandments as not just behaviour shaping rules. There's something that shows the limitation of what you can do. And that to keep them you need a new heart. You can't do it just through willpower and through determination. It's, it's not behaviour, it's motive, it's desires, it's passions. It's a controlling force that shapes your heart and then it shapes your decisions that you make. Who struggled with smoking here? Two weeks then my dad found out, you know my story, I was 13 and the rest is history, I've never smoked since. I'm told if you struggle with smoking, you can overcome it with willpower and perhaps the help of a Nicorette patch. I'm told that if you're someone that likes the glass of wine and one becomes three or four, if you know you want to cut back, you can do that through willpower. You can have a dry January or a dry month or you can stop drinking altogether just by good habits and willpower. I'm told, and I'm not very good at it, that you can lose weight after the Christmas bulge. You can lose weight in January if you cut out sweets. You should have seen me last night on the sofa. You should have seen me on Friday night. I'm going into confessional now. I'm going to be watching this film. The only way I could get through the soppiness of uh, Return to Me was Haribo sweets, but I got through it. Willpower can help you change some things. You can run further, you can get fitter, you can eat less, you can drink less, you can go to certain places, you can save a pot of money by changing behaviour by what you think. But Paul realised, and I'm sure you realise, willpower is actually not that strong. That's why New Year's resolutions last for days, not rarely for years, and certainly not for as long as you want. You can't summon up enough strength to overcome certain feelings and drivers and passions in your heart. You need a new heart. That's what the commandments are teaching us. And when Paul realised this, he saw, he saw the, the truth that we all need. We cannot do it through our own strength. I became undone, says Paul, verse 9 of Romans 7. I thought these were going to bring me life, but actually they brought me death. I felt crushed. I felt distressed and disheartened. 
I can't control my heart. I need someone to give me a new heart. These currents are too strong. These passions, I can't change them through just a change in my mindset. I need a new heart. That's what these four words actually reveal to us. You shall not covet. You can't stop coveting unless you've got a new heart. And Paul saw that. That's what we need, first of all. We need a new heart. Here's the second thing, why? Why do we need a new heart? I love Toblerone. The old shape, when you've got a proper weight with less gaps, you know, we're going to get rid of Europe, I think, soon. But I love Toblerone, the proper shape. In Switzerland, you can buy whole, I'm talking kind of feet long, single pieces of chocolate made by the same people. It is great. Breaks your teeth. Uh, I speak from personal experience, but it's wonderful. I love Toblerone, I love my wife, and I love God. Hopefully not to all the same degree. There is an order. All three of those things are lovely, in my opinion. All three of those things are lovable, in my opinion. But there is an order of importance. When we think of the commandments, one through nine, or two through nine, really, we see them as rules that we need to keep. We see them as uh, when we don't succeed in keeping them, sin is just breaking the rules. Sin is not keeping those commandments, uh, either 2 through 9 or 1 through 10. We sin when we don't adhere to the Ten Commandments. That's what we think of as sin. But one thing that Augustine is very helpful in bringing to the church all those hundreds of years ago was that actually sin is not just a behaviour keeping or breaking. There is a problem in our heart and actually it's an issue of love. It's an issue of disordered and disproportionate loves. St. Augustine said a better way for understanding sin is not I do this and don't do that. What you need is a new heart and what you need is to order your loves correctly. Toblerone is not the number one passion in my heart. Hopefully God is. Hopefully Joe is second. Hopefully Toblerone is way down the list depending on how much I like chocolate. But this commandment, you shall not cover, it shows us that we need a new heart. But now it tells us why we need it. We need a new heart, but we need a new heart with reordered loves. That's what St. Augustine teaches us. Look at verse 21 again. The tenth and the last commandment says this, you shall not cover those four words, but then it says, you shall not cover your neighbour's wife. You shall not set your desire in your neighbour's house or land, his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything. Do you notice what's happening here? As Moses speaks on behalf of God to the people of God, he's going back through commandments 2 through 9 as he explains commandment number 10. Eyes down. Here's what Moses is saying. If you keep commands 1 and 10, and if you keep the commandment you shall not covet, well, you would only break that one as he expands these four words, you'd only break that command, you'd only break the seventh commandment if you broke the tenth commandment. Put it that way. You'd only break the seventh commandment, which is to commit adultery, if you are coveting someone else's wife. In other words, you only break the seventh commandment, committing adultery, if you covet someone else, and that only happens if you have a disordered love in your heart. You love someone else's wife more than God in that instant, and that's why you commit adultery. You only break commandment 7 because you break commandment 10. It's an issue of passion of your heart. What drives you? 
what uh, attracts you? What are you addicted to in a positive sense? What are you passionate about? You would only break commandment number seven if first you broke commandment number ten. Why would you lie? Why would you lie at work? Or why would you lie to the tax man if you've fiddled your figures? Because you are desiring something else. It's not just a new heart. You need to reorder your loves. See how that works? Every commandment, says Moses, is actually an issue of coveting something else. You break commandment number five. You break commandment number two. You break commandment number three, four, or six, or seven, or eight. It's because you are desiring something more than what is said in those commandments. Why would you lie? Why would you steal? Why would you murder? Why would you ever do anything wrong? Because there is something in your heart that's driving you. You have a a desire for a new heart. You need a new heart. But that's not enough. You need to reorder your loves so that God comes first, not Toblerone. God comes first, not your spouse. God comes first, not your children. God comes first, not your career. God comes first, not your comfort. Whatever it may be, God must come first. That will stop you coveting. That will help you to put in practice where you don't steal. That helps you to be a person of integrity and truth. If your heart is fixed on God alone, then you will be able to keep commands two through nine. You'll be living in that place. You will be a person of integrity. You'll be a person who loves your neighbour. You'll be a person who is faithful. You'll be a person who cares for their parents, no matter how hard it is or how easy it is. Because you love God first, commandment number one. But we need a new heart. We need a new heart. So how do we get it? This is the longer point. The first two points are kind of short. What do we need? Why do we need it? But then how do we get it? This is what I want to spend most time on. How do we get a new heart? If you spent time this afternoon with a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, and you read Exodus chapter 20, it's where the Ten Commandments are written, Here's the second time in Deuteronomy chapter 5. If you read those chapters through from beginning to end, you would see something very important. We touched on this last week, that the commandments are always given in a story. They're always given in a story. We can take them out and we can just recite commandment 1 through 10 and we miss the vital driving context. They're written in a story. Look at verse 4 and 5 of Deuteronomy chapter 5. Moses tells a story. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. What you've got there in verses 4 and 5 is a little summary of what we get in more detail in the book of Exodus. It's a, it's a dramatic story. God wanted to meet his children. He wanted to meet his people, the people of Israel. And he says, go to the mountain. Go to Mount Horeb, which is another way of saying, go to Mount Sinai. And there God came down in his glory and majesty and might and power and awe and fire and splendor and he dwelt on top of the mountain and the people were afraid the people ran because they saw and sensed something of God's greatness God descended the God who spoke the universe into being he descended in a localized place it's called a a theophany God was there he presenced himself and when the people saw it they ran They ran away because they were afraid. They ran away because the sight of God's glory hurt. The sound of God's voice and glory 
hurt them. And so they ran. And they cried out to Moses in verse 4 and 5 and said, Moses, will you go up for us? Moses, will you intercede for us? Moses, will you stand in our place? Moses, will you mediate for us? And Moses did one of the bravest things any human has ever done. Moses did, I think, in this instance, the greatest thing that Moses ever did in his lifetime, where he went and he stood before the people. And more important than that, he stood before the mighty majesty and glory of God. It's the bravest thing he ever did. He spoke to God and he represented and stood on behalf of God's people. He went right into the fiery face of God's awesome majesty and mediated on behalf of the people. Here's something more remarkable. As he went into God's splendour, as he went towards God's holiness, he survived. That's something even more remarkable. He bridged the gap. He was the mediator. He stood between uh, sinful humanity and the majesty and purity of God, and he lived. He came down from Mount Sinai with the law. He came down with the commandments. He came down with enough information to tell God's people how they should live, how they could live. The New Testament points out a number of things. The New Testament points out that Moses came down from Sinai with the law, with the Ten Commandments, from God to the people. But he did not bring down the power to do it. He did not bring down the pardon that each of us need when we fail. He came down with the law. He did not come down with salvation. He brought the law down, but not salvation. He was there representative of one group of people. And what would it look like? What would it look like for a real mediator to come? Not on behalf of one group of people, but on behalf of the whole world. What would it take for uh, someone to go up the mountain, as it were, and look into the face and the fiery, holy and majesty of God again? What would it take for someone to do that? What would it take for someone to pay for the sins of the world and carry the guilt of the world and the wrongdoing of the world and all the things that we've ever done wrong? What would it take for someone to do that, the real mediator? What would it take to be a mediator like that, to bridge the gap, to stand in the space, to go up to God's holy majesty on behalf of the people and not to come back down with a law but to come back down with salvation. What would it take for someone to do that? The book of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 12, as the writer to the Hebrews is writing to Christians, he says this is something that you really need to grasp. Going up to Mount Sinai for Moses was horrible and difficult but we need to learn a lesson from this. And he writes these words in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. He says, Christians, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire, to darkness and gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words, that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Hear what the writer's saying? You've not come to that. You've not come to a place where you need to be afraid. You've not come to a place where you need to be terrified. That's why Moses had to go up the mountain. But your experience, Christians, is to be different. Verse 22 of Hebrews 12. But, says the writer, you have come. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem 
not to a mountain that can be touched, but to the city of the living God, to thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly and those whose names are written in heaven. For you have come before God, the judge of all men. How? How has that happened? How can Christians do that? He goes on, for you have come to Jesus. You've come to Jesus, the true mediator of the new covenant and to be sprinkled in his blood. Therefore, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Same language as we find in Deuteronomy and also in Exodus. Do you see what happened? Moses went up and into the face of God and he brought back the law of God. Jesus Christ, the true mediator, the better mediator, he went up on behalf of all the people in the world, all those who will be saved. And he went up and didn't bring down the law, he brought down salvation. Moses went up the mountain to be a mediator at the risk of his life. Jesus went up a different mountain, Mount Calvary, at the cost of his life. He brought back salvation and it cost him everything because we need a new heart. The only way that Jesus could represent the whole human race for the guilt that's ours and to come back with salvation that we long for and that we can't earn ourselves is if he died in our place. It's the gospel, it's the good news. The only way for sins that create this huge barrier between God and ourselves is if, is if he lays down his life and pays for those sins, not in part but in whole. And he did it. And he did it willingly and he did it sufficiently. And he did it out of love. He did it out of love. Now this is the story. This is the story that comes before the law. All of that story is pointed to, it's alluded to in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. It's all there. The law can't convert your heart. You can't change your heart. You need a new heart. And how do you get it? This is how you get it. Not by saying, oh heart, you need to love God more. Okay, I'm going to go out tomorrow, I'm going to start a new devotional reading plan. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to give more. I'm going to attend more. I'm going to read. It won't work because we need a new heart. Not, not just trying to exercise our old heart in the same way. Here's how you get the new heart. You need to see the story. Not just any story. You need to see that story. You need to marvel again and again at the greatest story that's ever been told. You have to take it and rub it into your heart. Your heart has to marinate in the gospel and it takes years and decades for you to get the gospel in and for God to reshape and refashion the priorities of your heart. It's not a USB stick that goes in the side of your mental hard drive and then you're, different, you're on a different operating system. It doesn't work like that. It's meditating and steeping and understanding and asking for the Spirit's help to live in the grace of the gospel. And that's what has the power to reprogram and reorder the passions and the desires and the loves of your heart. Now, how do you do that on Tuesday when you forget Sunday? And that's assuming that you remember Sunday through Monday. I think this is how you do it. This is how you do it. In 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, verse 10 and 12, there's two sentences that I just want to remind you of. You may be familiar with them, you may not. Peter... He's the one who made all these mistakes that Nick helpfully reminded the kids of. Peter says, concerning this salvation, that's the gospel, the prophets spoke of the grace that was to come to you, 
They were not serving themselves, but you, when they preached the gospel to you, into which even angels long to look. Angels are pretty clever. Angels, um, they've lived for thousands of years. They're not fallen. They're not affected by sin. But they can't stop looking at the gospel. They long to look into it. And two, about two, three weeks ago, I learned for the first time that the word longing to look into is the Greek word epithemeo. That's the word for covet. That's the word for lust. And here is one of the very, very few times in the whole of the Bible that coveting or lusting or longing to look into is used in a positive way. It's nearly always used negatively. But here it's used very positively. Here is the one thing. Here is the one truth that if you based your heart in, if you steep your soul in, if you live in the truth of the gospel, if you are addicted to grace, if you are addicted to understand the gospel more and more passionately and fully, this can reshape and refashion the priorities and drivers in your heart. This one longing that will destroy all the other inordinate longings. This is the one thing that you can be over-attracted to in a good way. This one thing that you can replace the longing for being fitter and uh, eating more healthy or cleaner food, if we're allowed to say that in recent days. The one thing that can unpick the security, the apparent security that a healthy bank balance offers. This is the thing that we can do if we steep our hearts and lives in the gospel. If we're like that man and woman in Psalm 1 who puts their roots down deep and drinks in and meditates on the word of God, it can give us new hearts. And it can take weeks and it can take decades to be captivated by the power and the love of God. That's how you reorder the loves of your hearts so that God is first, Toblerone is last, my wife is second, you guys are up there near the top as well. How is that possible? Only by living in the grace of the gospel. Only by being captivated by God's beauty will you do it. That's what the angels long to do. It's a remarkable sentence. Angels long and live for understanding the gospel. And if you do that, to quote the title of another book for children, that really adults should read as well, you can read stories, the old stories of Abraham and Moses, of Rebecca and Hannah, of Esther, of Ruth, of Daniel, of Joseph, and then you will see something remarkable. Every story whispers his name. Let's pray together. Father, it's a remarkable thing that the angels in heaven that have surrounded you for thousands, if not millions of years, long to look into the gospel. They look into it and they marvel at it. We think that the gospel is something that can be taught to children and then we move on to something else. Father, forgive us, Lord. We need to remain and live and be steeped in your grace and remain in the gospel all the days of our lives. Please continue to refresh the priorities of our hearts. Please reprogram our minds. Please affect us internally that volitionally our behaviour would change for the right reasons and fueled by the right motives, which is thankfulness because of your grace and mercy shown to us in the gospel. Father, help us please to live as different people that you receive all the glory because you take broken people like us, sinful people like us, 
and you make us people that can change the world because you're at work and people who are weak. And so that when we are weak, actually, we are strong. Help us to not just believe this, but help us to live in the power of it, I pray. Amen.